Uh, Today's reading is from Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You may be seated, but you know that, evidently. It's great to see you guys this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, Again, my name's Brant. If you don't know me, I'm one of the team members here at Christ City Church, and it's my delight to bring you this word this morning. I was hoping that that maybe the cool weather would mean I wouldn't sweat as much up here, Uh, but I'm not sure that's the case, so forgive me if I'm just streaming Try to ignore it. (laughs) Uh, If you would uh, pray with me as we begin, that'd be great. Uh, Father, we come before you, and we we come as as people, uh, Lord, who uh, in our natural state we're like those words that Asaph said. We're brutish and and ignorant, Father, like beasts before you in our sin. But we know that that because of Jesus, we are those who are recipients of your grace. That we're those who have been called into relationship. Uh, in love with the God of the universe who delights and satisfies our soul more than anything else in all creation. And God, I ask that you would do a work this morning in exalting your son, exalting yourself, that we would see, see you high and lifted up, worthy of our praise, worthy of all of our delight and admiration, that we would, we would be willing to, to say along with Asaph the words at the end, Whom have I in heaven 
but you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would work that through, through this, uh, this message this morning uh, for your glory and for our good. Amen. So this morning as we jump into Psalm 73, I, I do have a question for you. And the question is this. Have you ever been disoriented? There's lots of things that cause disorientation in our lives, aren't there? You could maybe have a lot of pain and that could be disorienting for you. You could have maybe uh, too much pain medication and that can be disorienting for you. Or maybe uh, too many drinks on a Friday evening or maybe a bump on the head, right? There's all these things that can disorient us in our lives. But there are uh, several uh, things that disorient us in life. And one of those things, though, that we don't often talk about, or we guess we do sometimes, is, is, is fear. Fear is a cause of disorientation for us. And as fear builds in our lives, uh, this fight or flight ref, uh, reflex takes over, and we don't use our, our logical thinking patterns the way that we used to, and we start to act irrationally. And one of those uh, there's, there's lots of different situations, though, that we can talk about where maybe that fight or flight response, that fear, that panic would set in more than others. And one of those activities that that might happen in is something like scuba diving. Has anyone scuba dived here in this room? Got some scuba divers? Okay, one. Excellent. Maybe two. <clears throat> Great. This is going to go over awesome. Um, well, I haven't, I haven't scuba dived before, and I think it still works, so it'll be okay. But the thing about scuba diving is that you're, you're actually especially prone to disorientation that comes from panic or from fear. Because you, you enter, you have to imagine yourself entering into this hostile environment, right? Where if, if I don't have everything that I'm relying on to give me life on my face and my back and my body, then I'm going to die, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult or it's, it's a frightening environment just getting into that situation, let alone having, say, the, the cold water washing around you and you're getting colder and colder. And you have this restricting wetsuit, you're like, man, this thing is, I'm getting kind of claustrophobic. And you have this regulator strapped to your face and your, your vision is reduced, right? And, and you have to breathe, not normally, but through the regulator. And then you're in the murky waters and your vision might even be limited. And it's well known that as panic sets in, one of the things that happens is that our, our breathing increases. We breathe faster. We start to panic, and as you panic, it's also well known that one of the things that you might do is try to remove the things that are maybe over your mouth, right? You know, that happens for, I think there's some nurses in the room. Sometimes you'll have patients that try to remove their, their, their breathing tubes and that sort of thing because you're, you're in the panic trying to pull something away and, and make sure you can breathe well. Well, unfortunately for scuba divers, that's the regulator. So one time in uh, 1992... That's exactly what happened to a young cave diver named Rolf Adams. This is a cave diver. He's on a, a training expedition for a larger event in Florida. And he's with this expert diver who's guiding him. And they're on their way back. And as they're on their way back out of the cave, following this tether that's leading them to safety, uh, the, the instructor looks back and he realizes that Adams, you know, he stopped. He signals to him. He says, hey, hold on a second. Something's not right. And I got to change my regulator for my backup regulator. I, I'm not getting enough oxygen from this one. So he, he pulls off his, his primary regulator and moves to the backup regulator and signals, okay, I think I'm okay. So they keep on going. Just a few minutes later, though, the instructor, he, he feels a tap on his back. And he sees this man who's now frantic, saying, I, I, can't, I can't breathe. You know, something's wrong. And he signals to him. And, and the, the instructor says, you know, it's, it's okay. 
uh, I have my backup regulator. Just use that. We're close to the entrance. You know, we'll be all right. So he gives them his backup regulator. But in the process, having given him the backup regulator, they'd sunk to the bottom of the cave floor. They'd lost their buoyancy. They disturbed the sediment. The, the vision was even less than it had been before. Then they floated back up, and they bumped against the top of the cave, and they lost hold of the tether. And, and this man panicked. And he started to do what we do when you panic, and he pulled at his regulator, and it, and it came off, and he floated away into the murk. It's a tragic, tragic story. But when they found, when they found his body, they, they realized that it wasn't a lack of oxygen that had killed him. His tank was full, or not, at, least, at least it had plenty of oxygen left in it. What had killed him was, was a disorientation that was caused by fear. It's a hard story. It's not a pleasant pick-me-up story, but I share this with you because I want us this morning to be concerned about the dangers in our lives of disorientation. Because it's not something that's exclusive to scuba diving. Because for people living in this world, it's actually a regular part of our lives. And the results of being disoriented can be tragic. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73 because this psalm acts for us as a tether, as a lifeline, guarding us against disorientation and leading us from the dangers of the murky waters and out toward the clarity and the satisfaction and the truth of living with God and having our desires satisfied in Him. And Psalm 73 does this by relating a personal testimony for us by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was a very famous worship leader in ancient Israel. He led worship at the temple. He's kind of the Chris Tallman of the day. Or maybe the, the Tanner Koistra of the day. You know, there's this famous, well-known worship leader. And he tells a testimony about a point in his life when he had become tragically disoriented. Dangerously disoriented. But hear this. Where the scuba diving account attributes the disorientation to fear. Asaph is going to tell us that the cause of his disorientation is different. That his cause was, it was envy. It was envy. And that envy led him to desire things that were ultimately dangerous for him. That would lead him away from the satisfaction, the joy, and the delight that he was made for in God and towards something else. So as you look at this text, our outline is pretty simple. It's going to follow the progression of Asaph's testimony. From the danger that he experienced to safety. From disorientation to recalibration as he remembers the goodness of the God that he serves. So three points. Number one, envy, verses 1 to 15. Number two, clarity in verses 16 to 20. And then number three, grace in 21 to 28. Envy, 1 to 15. Clarity, 16 to 20. Grace, 21 to 28. So just look with me at, at envy at our first point here, at the beginning of Asaph's testimony. And you see in verses 1 to 3, there's this, this summary or this introduction that kind of explains uh, in, in an encapsulated form the testimony that he's going to get into. So read verses 1 to 3 with me. He summarizes a situation that he experienced this way. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph starts his testimony with this confession that God is good. 
He knows God is good. He knows God's good to those who are pure in heart, to those, in other words, who love him genuinely. And yet, and yet, even though he knows that, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped in verse 2. He'd almost pulled the regulator off of his face in the murk of the waters that were caused by that envy. Why? Well, because of verse 3. You see that? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He knew God's good, but he was led away from God because of his envy. So that's just the intro kind of summarizing the story for us. But then he gets into it. And in verses 4 to 12, Asaph begins to, <clears throat> excuse me, he begins to describe the wicked, but not from the point of reality, not from the point of view of reality, from the point of view of his disorientation. And the thing that we need to realize is that envy is something in our lives that actually distorts reality. We don't see things as they are when we're in a situation of envy. And that was true for Asaph. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, as we read 4 to 12, then we need to realize that what's happening is he's describing what he's watching in this world around him, but from a distorted perspective. So look at 4 to 12 with me. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph's complaining to God that, that contrary to what you'd think would happen, these people who disregard God and his good purposes for his creation, they actually get away with it. They do well. They do well. He says, pride's their necklace. Violence covers them. They strut through the heavens. They got swagger, right? And they're doing it with this insolence against God, mocking his goodness. And they prosper. At least that's what Asaph thinks. And look at verses 4 and 7. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And then verse 7 is my favorite. You guys love this verse? Their eyes swell out through fatness. So I'm pretty sure if you went and told somebody that you met on the street, like, I can see that you're quite prosperous because you're very fat and sleek. <clears throat> you know, your eyes are really bulging out through fatness. I mean, if you want to see a peaceful Vancouverite respond by punching you in the face, just say that. It's not going to go well, especially in Kitsilano. It's not going to go well. But for the hardworking ancient Hebrew, you need to understand that, that being fat was an indication for them of wealth and of prosperity. Right, this, was, this was a description of, you know, those, those overfed dog, that overfed dog or cat that you see sometimes, and just luxuriating on the couch, resting in his pleasure. You know, that's, that's how he's describing these people. 
And it's weird to us, but actually I experienced something like this in my own life. Because I went one time, I was traveling a different part of the world uh, in, in Zambia, where their way of thinking was a little bit more like the Hebrew way of thinking. And there were some people on the team that I was with that had a couple extra pounds on them. And what happened was that those extra pounds garnered all this unwanted attention. Because all these people around them were saying, oh man, you are, you've got some, you're, you're fat and you're beautiful. And they loved it. They loved it. It was attractive to them. They thought it was this, this beautiful thing. It's not our culture, but that's what Asaph is communicating. And he's envious of it. He's envious of the extra pounds and the prosperity that it represents. And in verse 12, he summarizes his distorted perspective of the wicked. Also, I should point out, do you see the ways even these verses where, where he kind of thinks that they don't get sick? That they don't get afflicted? You know, they, they don't have any pangs until death. You can tell right away, okay, his perspective's off here. Right? How, that's, that's not true. That's a distorted perspective. But then he makes a summary of the way that he's looking at things with his distortion of envy. He says, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. And they increase in riches. Asaph's distorted perspective then, as he summarizes that, it leads him to complain against God in verses 13 to 14. And he says there, look with me, verses 13 to 14. He's like, man, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He just throws up his hands and says, look God, it's been kind of tough living for you. I've given up a lot. And, what, and have you rewarded me? No. It's not very good. What's the point? Why do I even bother? I don't have it as good as the people around me. And like a diver in his panic, Asaph is disoriented, and he starts to claw at that breathing mask. He starts to pull off that regulator and wonder if it's really helping the situation at all. Maybe it's making it worse. But pause here for a second with me. Am I right in thinking that Asaph isn't the only one who does this? Don't, don't we do the same thing? Isn't it true that so many times we look around us and we think, man, if I had the kind of freedom, if I wasn't encumbered by my family and by my church, by, by this group of people, then I could really have the freedom to pour into my career. You know, then I could really live it up. I could drive the car I wanted. I could have the house I wanted but I, I'm missing out. I'm missing out. You know, if it weren't for following God's laws, I could really enjoy the pleasure that this world enjoys around me. I could have all these unencumbered relationships. I could have the, the freedom of, of short-term, low-commitment relationships and all the pleasure that brings. And look, nobody gets hurt. It's all good. If, if I didn't follow God, then then maybe, maybe I'd be satisfied in a relationship. Maybe, maybe I'd have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse or something. I, if I just lived the way that, that was like the people around me. Or maybe you'd think, you know, if I didn't follow God, then I could get rid of my wife or my husband. You know, I wouldn't have to stay committed to them. And it would be better for me. And, and it doesn't seem to have that much of a, of a repercussion in life. It's okay. I can do these things. Or... Maybe it's just a material resentment. You know, like, my commitment to this church, my giving to this church, my taking time away from me for this church, I mean, it just cost me a lot. It cost me a lot. Maybe I could, maybe I'd be better off if I didn't participate. Maybe I'd be better off if I didn't give. give. 
You know, following God sometimes just seems even to us, I think, to put a damper on how we perceive our lives. And we think it'd be better if we didn't do it at all. You know, I remember this happening to me in a really poignant way when I was at seminary and I'm studying to, to be in vocational ministry. And I'm just trying to follow Jesus and I'm looking at my bank account and I'm thinking, hmm, hmm, did I make the right decision? You know, or even today, honestly, I can lose perspective when I compare myself with friends that have chosen not to follow Jesus, right? And, and I look at them and I see their lives and I'm like, you know, they're, they got a lot. They got a lot more than I have. Maybe, maybe I should do what they do instead. And even moving here, honestly, to Vancouver from mission provokes some of this in me. In mission, if I saw an exotic car, if I saw a Prius, I thought it was an exotic car, I should say it that way. I'm like, all right, here we are, it's an import, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then I come to Vancouver, and I've seen Rolls Royces in my alley, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> you're, you're causing the, the, the wicked to prosper, and I'm, and I'm losing out. You know, another thing that I think about, though, is that, is that when we have this kind of envy build in our lives, it quenches our faith, doesn't it? And it quenches our witness. Because I look at the guy with the Rolls Royce in the alley, and I say, what, what do I have to offer you? I, can, I don't have anything to offer you, right? I think that these probably weren't Asaph's most fruitful years in ministry. They probably weren't. But the thing is, envy disorients. And envy is wandering in the desert without the water for days and the heat waves are building and you see things just over the horizon that aren't really there. And Asaph, thankfully, doesn't end there. He continues his testimony for us. And in verses 16 to 20, he explains for us the way that he regained his perspective and what he saw and what the reality was that he observed when he did gain perspective. So look with me at our second point, clarity, in verses 16 to 20. And read with me verses 16 to 17a. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, note that, until I went into the sanctuary of God. You see how he had his vision corrected? He went to church. He went to church. He went to the Old Testament equivalent of going to church. He went to the temple, to the sanctuary where God's presence was. Up to that point, though, before then, he said, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He was wondering, he's like, I'm looking around. I'm trying to make sense of all this. It seems meaningless. And I don't know why I'm following God. And I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and give up. Until he went to church. Until he went to the presence of God. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So for Asaph, going to the sanctuary meant going to that ancient temple in Jerusalem where he would have been a worship leader. He would have smelt the sacrifices in the air. He would have heard the worship of God's people singing around him, caught up in the throng, praising this glorious God. He would have heard the word of God being read and declared on the steps around the temple. He would have been exposed, I think, to this truth in a concentrated form, the truth of God's presence and his word in this world in concentrate form. He would have looked up at the walls of that temple and, and known just beyond those walls is the presence of Almighty God. 
the good God who loves his people and has good purposes for us. He would have seen that. He would have been confronted with it. At the temple, he would have been corrected. And his vision and his compass would have been recalibrated. But we need to realize something. That temple was torn down. And today the Bible teaches that, that God doesn't dwell in a temple made with human hands. He dwells in the church by his spirit. Not behind the walls of a stone temple, but behind the fleshy walls of human hearts. Do you realize today that you have something much better than the temple? You have the church that's built through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what we have. Do you know that it's in the hallways and the passageways as we gather together of this theater that God is doing something incredible? That his spirit is present. That you, you talk to your friend, you talk to your brother, your sister, and you see the gospel on their faces. As they tell you how I followed Jesus this week when it was hard. And it was difficult, but I'm clinging on to him and to the truth of his word. You come here and you get a little foretaste of what we're being prepared for. For glory. As we worship together with joy. We delight in this God who saved us. It's a taste of what's coming when he takes us home to be with him. Man, it's here that we hear the word of God read. We hear the word of God sung. We hear the word of God preached, reorienting our hearts, causing us to to have this beacon of light that shines through the darkness and calls us to his truth, to embrace it. Oh, man. This happens in the church. And I'm wondering this morning, do you value it? Do you value it? Do you value this church like Asaph valued the temple? Is it possible to value it too highly? And if you think, yeah, I value it, does your calendar and does your wallet prove that you value it? This is a place that God's given us by his grace, where his presence is. Oh, it changes our perspective. It's good to be here, to see the truth. So Asaph, he goes to church. He encounters the truth. And we want to know, we want to answer the question, what does he think now that he's seen the truth? How has his perspective changed? Look with me at verses 18 to 20 and see how his perspective has changed. It says, Truly you set them in slippery places, You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Look at those words. See that? Slippery places fall to ruin, destroyed in a moment, like a dream when one awakes. They're images of sudden and surprising destruction. I don't think that should be surprising to us either because we see it in our lives. We see that sadly in the way that people often around us who pursue a life of pleasure and satisfaction in rebellion toward God and his good purposes, how they reap the consequences in their lives. Tiger Woods is an example, isn't he? You know, this, this man who, this phenom, a golfer unlike any other, who lived up his life and enjoyed all the fruits of that prosperity and that fame, just threw himself at it with abandon. But then, as news of his numerous affairs kind of, kind of came tumbling in, 
what happened? The low end estimate is that is that his shareholder value in his brand lost five billion dollars. That's the low end. He ended up divorced. We don't know how the long term effects are going to impact him and his family and his children. You know, after the scandal, Tiger Woods said something. We got a quote here. He, he said this. We need to see it. He said, I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was wrong and I was foolish. I mean, he had his perspective changed, didn't he? But forget Woods for a moment. There's tons of examples in our lives. What about Bernie Madoff? <clears throat> right? I won't tell you a lot about him if you don't know who he is, but he was once worth $17 billion due to uh, just injustice. And now he's serving a 150-year life sentence. And what about Lance Armstrong? Right? This, this famous biker, again, this athlete, just incredible. But then the doping scandal hits, and it said that he personally lost $75 million in one day because of that scandal. Right? All seven Tour de France trophies were stripped from him. What about Harvey Weinstein? We've seen that recently, haven't we? His life probably looked pretty good from the outside for a little while, even though some people now are saying it seemed punky, seemed like there's some rot there. And then now we look at it and like, yeah, it's ended in disaster. But it's not just the rich and famous, is it? And we can, we can mimic the air of thinking that everything is just, you know, th- it only happens to the people in these situations that have all the wealth and the fame where their, their end is not good. But I'm sure you've already seen people in your lives, in your personal lives, who've tried to find pleasure and satisfaction outside of God, and they've reaped destruction from it. Have you, do you know people like that? Have you seen that happen? They reap sorrow, and it's terrible. I'm only, I'm only a, a young 30-year-old uh, guy, but I have lots of friends that I grew up with that aren't pursuing Jesus. And it's tragic because I look at the trajectory of their lives. It starts in their teens, and they start making these decisions. Like, I don't want to follow God. I'm not going to seek my pleasure, my satisfaction in Him. And one step leads to another. Down the road, the things escalate, and I look at their lives now, and I think, man, You've, you've missed it. I'm so sorry. There's so much better for you than that. You've reaped destruction. And don't misunderstand me here. I'm, I'm not trying to say that every single person who rejects God experiences the height of calamity in their lives. We know in God's word, don't we, that, that God sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Isn't that true? God is a gracious God. He's a kind God. For many people, by God's grace, they don't reap the rewards as much as they, of their labor as much as they might. But we need to realize that the Bible teaches that that's for a reason. Because God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. So that they'll receive grace now so they don't face judgment later. That's, that's why it's there for. Living against God and his purposes has a general reality to it. It's not going to go well for you. You're living against the grain of the orientation that he's created the universe to flow toward. You're swimming upstream and it's hard work. It's not going to go well. The thing is, you and I were made to know God. We're made to be satisfied in a relationship with him. And ultimately, our desires won't be satisfied. 
apart from him. Ultimately, we will end up on the outside of his blessings, facing his judgment, unless we find Jesus, unless we find God to be the satisfying one for our, our desires. All this, Asaph realized when, when he comes into the presence of God. But in that moment of disorienting envy, he'd forgotten that truth. He'd pulled at that regulator. He'd forgotten that, that God hadn't given it to him to cause him to miss out on life. God had given it to him to cause him to have life and have it to the full. It's not a loss of life, it's life-giving. He didn't miss out by not following God at all. So how does Asaph respond to all of this, do you think? He'd been envious, and he was heading for danger, but his, his compass was reoriented, and he, he caught a glimpse of reality. How does he respond now? How does it affect him? It caused him to rejoice in the grace that he'd received. And it caused him to delight in God. And our third point this morning, where we see that, is, is the point of grace. Grace in verses 21 to 28. And there's two parts to grace, isn't there? Grace is, is a gift that we don't deserve given to us. So first we need to look here at the way that Asaph wasn't deserving. Look at how he speaks of himself and his envy in, his, in verses 21 to 22. This is how he sees himself. This is the backdrop to the grace that he receives from God. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He felt deeply convicted. I think, I think oftentimes you and I are afraid to look in the mirror as carefully as Asaph looks in the mirror and is honest about himself. Is that true? Whether from pride or something else, but he's honest and he looks hard at who he is and his sin against God and he calls it like it is. He says, I'm, a, I'm like a beast here. I think the picture in these verses is this ravenous hyena, right? You got to imagine, you know, this animal desire going at the rotten flesh and just gorging yourself on what is not good for you. He tells God, look, I didn't want you at all. I wanted the lies of those who hate you. That's what I wanted. That's what my animal desire was leading me toward. That's what my lust was pursuing. Yet, 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 the other side of grace. Does God refuse to take Asaph back even after he had just desired these things? No. Look at this grace that Asaph was confident in. Not because he had deserved it but precisely because God is a good and loving God who loves to give graciously to those who come to him in repentance. That's the hope of the gospel for us. We serve a God who graciously loves to give us not what we deserve, but far better. Read verses 23 to 24 with me. What, is, what does Asaph say? What is the grace that he's received? It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Nevertheless is an incredible word in Scripture. Right up there with but, and yet, and despite, right? Despite his brutish sin, Asaph recognizes God's grace to him, and he rejoices in it. He sees that, that I wasn't losing out by pursuing what the wicked had. Sorry, by not pursuing what the wicked had. I was being preserved for this grace that God has given me. This is what I have. And there's four things I want you to see here in these verses. Four things in verses 23 to 24 that we need to recognize. And this grace that he's received despite his sin. 
Number one, presence. I am continually with you. And that's, that's rich. The presence of a good and glorious God satisfying us, not just in the moment, but always with us through thick and thin. Compare that with the momentary pleasures of this life. Will they last? No. It might look good for a second. It might satisfy you for a moment, but it will fade. And not only that, but you'll fade. And your ability to enjoy those things will fade. That's what happens. Second, security. He's got security by God's grace despite his sin. Asaph says, you hold my right hand. Asaph has the confidence that he has the strength of the strongest swimmer in the depth of that cave with his arm around him, pulling him towards safety and toward joy. It's not a disinterested guide who's with him. It's the grace of a loving father. That's what he has. He's got the, you know, that, that situation where the child runs up to their father and just wants to be held. Asaph is confident that, that I'm held and I'm embraced by the God of the universe. That's his joy. Man, is there security like that in this world? Can pursuing pleasure apart from God, can it offer you that? He's got guidance, number three. Asaph says, you guide me with your counsel. How? Through the word of God. How is, how is the darkness and the mist dispelled? Through the word of God. The presence of God with his people. He has a light in the dark showing him, hey, the exit of the cave is that way. Joy is that way. Pleasures evermore are that way. Follow this. That's what Asaph has. Now here's the question. Do you have that apart from God? In this world, what guarantee do we have that the path that we're pursuing apart from him is going to lead us anywhere certain? It's going to lead us to pleasures evermore. We don't have that guarantee. We're groping around trying to figure it out. We're in the mist and the darkness. By God's grace and his goodness, Asaph has a future. Number four, he's got a future. I love this. He's protected. Afterward, even through, uh, that's a good word, afterward. That's summarizing his life, right? Through the pain, through the suffering, through the difficulty. Is it's going to come? Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. He'll be received to a place of love and eternity with this God, with his presence around him in a world where sin and death and pain are no more. Man, I, I, guys, I passed a brutal accident on the way here this morning. I was praying for the woman in the car. We were talking with her. She, she was waiting for the, the ambulances to come and the fire trucks to come and extract her. There's a time coming when those accidents won't happen anymore. That's what we're being preserved for. That's our hope in God. Compare that with rebelling against God. There's a future for you too, if that's the route that you choose. But it's judgment. So Asaph, he envied the wicked and he was like a beast, but he received grace from God in a relationship with him that was more satisfying than anything he could have anywhere else. And that leads him in verses 25 to 28 to declare these incredible words that we all probably have heard at some time. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Do you see the way he's turned 180 degrees? From envying the wicked to saying, there is nothing on earth that I desire apart from you. That's a churn. That's a complete churn. That's repentance, I think, and rejoicing in the truth that he has in God. But what a claim. That's a pretty severe claim too, isn't it? Can we say that? He looks at the job that he wanted. He looks at his super fast Italian designed luxury chariot that he was setting up for, right? And he's like, I don't want that. He looks at all the fame and all the wealth and all the pleasure that, that, that the ancient Hebrew could attain. And he says, I don't want that. I don't want any of that. I want God. I want him and I have him and I delight in him. What I have is so much more. Consider this though. Asaph didn't have what you have available today. He had to go to the temple. He had to go to Jerusalem on a mountain to see bulls and goats sacrificed so that they could be substituted, their lives could be substituted so he could receive grace as their blood was shed so that he could come into the presence of God. He felt their blood splattered on his face and he was conscious that, okay, I've got grace from God. I can come close to his presence. Not, not to be in his presence, but I can approach the temple where he dwells. Through Jesus, you and I come to God, not through animal sacrifices, but through the bloodshed of the most perfect being in the universe, able to cleanse you of sin once and for all and restore you in relationship with God. That's what we have. He's come for you. He's died for you so you can know God. He's brought you into his presence. He entered this world full of sin and pain willingly so that he could receive the punishment from God that you deserved and so that you can receive the grace from God and the love that he has earned. That's grace. Not getting what you deserve, but getting far more so that you can have the spirit of God, not in the temple, but within you, drawing you into relationship with the triune Trinitarian God of the universe. Oh man, that's what we have. You know what Paul says about what we have in Christ? He says, if all that's true, then listen to these words. Paul says in, in Romans 8, 31 to 32 in the second half of the Bible, he says, if God is for us and if Jesus has come, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us a couple things? A few things. Graciously give us all things. That's our hope. Asaph had the shadow, and he said he desired nothing on earth despite the shadow that he experienced. We have the substance. We have the presence of God by his spirit in this church. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you, O God. Man, my prayer for you is that, is that even as we're talking about this, my prayer for you all week has been that you begin to sense this. That right now you'd be confronted with this truth 
that there's something offered here through the God of the Bible, through Jesus Christ, that is not offered anywhere else. And that you would be stirred to say with Asaph, there's nothing I desire apart from him. You'd let the idols fall to the floor, and you'd serve and you'd love him. Oh, I pray that for you. And as we close, I have a question. Do you love this God? Do you know this God like Asaph knows this God? You know, Asaph knew the God of the Bible and was deeply satisfied. But there's a problem, I think, that's just a very strong cultural problem that I want to address right now. Is that we live in a, in a world where we're told it's okay to manufacture our own gods. And what I mean by that is that we're told I can pick and choose from the Bible. I can pick and choose maybe a little bit from the Bible, maybe a little bit from somewhere else. And I'm going to make this God and understand him as I prefer him to be. Let me, let me call you, come in and call you out right here and, and just ask you to consider this. I don't think that you're serving the God of the Bible if that's you. I don't think that you can have this God satisfy you if that's you. I don't think you can know the sweetness of knowing Jesus if that's you. You know what you could do? Maybe it's time to, to jettison that God. Maybe it's time to give him up and to try to understand the God of the Bible revealed for us in his word instead. You know, ultimately, this psalm is about desire. Asaph, he tells us his testimony of how his desire became distorted. And he thought he could find pleasure and satisfaction somewhere else away from God. And he tells us how, how he came into the presence of God. He was exposed to the truth of God's word with the people of God. And his perspective was changed. And he realized, I have more than I could ever ask for here with this God. He can satisfy me like nothing else can. And my prayer for you right now, just as we wrap it up, is that you'd feel the danger of envy. That's why I shared a pretty graphic story at the beginning of this message, honestly. I want us to, I want us to feel that disorientation is dangerous. I want to pry your white-knuckled, gripping hands off of Blundstones and Birkenstocks and Bugattis and bottom lines, and I want you to hold on to Jesus. I want you to hold on to Jesus and to be satisfied in him. I want us to be able to declare together with joy and confidence, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that we desire besides you, as for us, it is good to be near God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we just, we just come before you. We come before you in repentance. Each of us have sought to satisfy ourselves outside of you this week even, even this morning. Oh, God, we rejoice that you're a God who is gracious in love toward us through Jesus. Rejoice that you've made us for yourself and you've revealed the way for us to know you. Oh, help us to delight in you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.